This is ADH TV. I'm David Flint. The program is Save the Nation, and I'm delighted that uh, once again we have Peter Jennings, who's been on this program before and been very well received. He's the expert in defence and uh, national security matters has a column, a regular column in The Australian, which is awaited with great interest. And uh, a recent column created uh, quite a stir, and that related to the Port of Darwin. Peter, welcome again. David, thank you. It's a pleasure to be talking with you on your program. Good. Could you again explain to us what was your column about, the one concerning the Port of Darwin? So we had uh, very recently, David, uh, a, a, an example of uh, something that happens in Canberra quite often, uh, known in the press gallery as taking out the trash, uh, and that usually refers to government putting out an unpopular press statement sometime late on a Friday afternoon in the hope that uh, it's going to get the minimum amount of attention. Uh, and... Um, uh, this particular one concerned a review that Prime Minister Anthony Albanese uh, indicated around the time of the election uh, would be held into the lease of the Port of Darwin, uh, which uh, has been let to a Chinese company called Landbridge for 99 years, David. Um, the, the original lease was in uh, 2015, so we're now seven years into Belize. Um, and the effect of this uh, press statement, which actually came out from uh, the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, was to say, okay, we've looked at the lease, we've assessed um, what was described as the security of Australians um, against a series of acts of parliament, of legislation protecting critical infrastructure. And uh, we, the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, have concluded that um, uh, the safety of Australians is fine. Uh, we have the necessary authority to uh, step into the lease should we need to, but we don't need to do so. Uh, and so the, the lease continues to Landbridge for well, the remaining 92 years of the lease. Um, and um, very clearly this was uh, uh, taking out the trash in media terms, David, because the Prime Minister was nowhere near it. Uh, it happened just as the uh, horrible uh, terrorist attack against Israel had, was, was uh, current news. Um, and here's a government which I think is rather embarrassed about the fact that it's not being prepared to step in to rescind the lease even though it was critical of the federal government at the time uh, for allowing this thing to, to slide through. So my, my column focused on that. Uh, and what I was really saying is to, you know, say the safety of Australians is assured because we have legislation relating to critical infrastructure really misses the most important point. Uh, and the most important point is that we have a growing uh, strategic priority on Northern Australia. Uh, we have a, a government through a recent defence review called the uh, Defence Strategic Review, which agrees that Australia needs to put more effort into moving military forces up to the north, 
all with a focus on China and China's activities in the South China Sea. And we have now um, year 11 of a growing US Marine Corps presence in the north of the country. Um, about two and a half thousand Marines right now, David. And yet the most significant Australian port, military or civil, um, really between Fremantle in, in the west and uh, Cairns or, or perhaps Townsville uh, in the east is the port of Darwin. And that's under the control of a Chinese company, which is now, I believe, getting in the way of a necessary Australian uh, and American military build-up in, in the north of Australia. And it would seem no government, coalition or, or Labor, um, is prepared to deal with this because they're concerned about the impact that uh, would be uh, felt in, in Beijing. And, of course, with uh, Prime Minister Albanese uh, this weekend off to China, uh, it seems to me that there's a government doing the right thing on the lease, which would be to rescind it. That was just kicked into touch because Albanese, of course, wants to have a successful trip. He wants to commemorate the 50th anniversary of Gough Whitlam's visit, re-establishing relations with, with China. Um, and so once again, uh, a sort of a, a feel-good political vibe is um, preventing Australia doing the right thing in strategic terms uh, for the future use of the port. But isn't there a, a robust, as the statement says, a robust regulatory system in place to handle risks concerning the critical infrastructure? Doesn't that give you some solace? It, it doesn't really, David, because at the end of the day, no legislation is useful if a government isn't prepared to um, use step-in powers to to enact it. Um, I'm I'm less concerned, to be honest with you, about the risks of spying from the facility. Although, frankly, we do have a large marine presence operating in Darwin, and that's something which I think we should pay at least a little attention to from from an espionage point of view. But really, what is the major problem from my perspective is, you know, the Port of Darwin is really the only piece of critical maritime infrastructure in the north of the country. We could be making much more use of that for the Australian Defence Force. I, I could see um, the, the US Marine presence actually growing quite considerably in, in coming years. And if they're not going to be able to use that port facility because it's Chinese controlled, then then where will they go? Um, at the very end of the Morrison government, there was a, a suggestion that a new port might be built sort of adjacent to the port of Darwin and, and um, $1.6 billion was notionally allocated to the task, but, but there's no progress on that either, David. And, the fact is that, you know, building infrastructure in the north is is slow and costly. So there's, there's a quelling effect by the presence of that uh, Chinese company. The port, in other words, could be better used. I think the intelligence risk is uh, not, not substantial, but something that we shouldn't take um, as a trivial matter. Um, and then from the point of view of just the operation of a piece of critical infrastructure, well, it's as vulnerable as any other critical infrastructure in Australia which runs on 
um, IT, uh, on uh, information technology, on uh, usually uh, connected to the internet, that, that creates a potential vulnerability as we would see in any port or airport or, or any facility that, that draws on IT. So, so there's, there's a, a range of reasons to be concerned. Uh, and if government's not prepared to step in for the, for the broader good of allowing that build-up of our own military presence in the region, well, then we've lost an opportunity uh, at a time when uh, what's going on in the South China Sea is becoming of increasing concern. Yes, uh, that piece I read to you, I just didn't understand what they were talking about when they were talking about a robust regulatory system. And it seemed to me to be very suspicious that they did that in the week. It was the Friday following the referendum. And it was done on the Friday afternoon, as you rightly say. And it wasn't done by the minister. It was just a, a press release by the department. But uh, we were told in uh, 2015 that Landbridge really was a, a corporation with a board, a local board, and run by Australians and uh, very little being done in relation to Landbridge by the main corporation in China. In fact, it was uh, effectively autonomous. <laughs> yes, that's right. It, 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 it goes to uh, monumental naivety which existed in Australian official circles and government circles at the time. I mean, it's worth remembering, uh, David, that, you know, 2015 was also the year that we signed the, the free trade agreement with China. Uh, there was a huge volume in that, uh, around that time of uh, uh, Chinese investment into Australian critical infrastructure. And I, I suppose just possibly you might say that, you know, if you were taking a treasury perspective, that that was a, a good thing. Um, I, I, in many respects, I think the announcement of the lease in 2015 was, was something of a turning point where Australians began to say, hang on, how, how much is too much in terms of Chinese control of Australian critical infrastructure? Uh, and it wasn't long after that time that we had, you know, Sam Dastiari in New South Wales being forced to resign because of uh, taking payments uh, in order to front up to a Chinese media-only press conference to say that he was had no problem with uh, China controlling the South China Sea. That was one incident. We had uh, shortly after that the Australian government taking steps under Malcolm Turnbull, the last, last few days of Mal Malcolm Turnbull's prime ministership to prevent Chinese companies from buying into the 5G infrastructure as that, as that rolled out through the country. So 2015, 2016 was a tipping point where I think Australians began to be more aware of the risks of over-dependence on China. Up until that time, it had been a sort of a crazy race to uh, become more and more dependent. And I think the Port of Darwin really became a sort of a, a test case of that. Um, government allowed it to happen. No government stepped in to deal with it and no government has since had the courage to deal with it. But then again, when a press release comes out late on a Friday afternoon and there's no minister's name attached to it, one thing that tells you is that they're embarrassed about this. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, what, what we should have is a, a government that's more prepared 
to focus on our national security and, and less concerned about the optics of how something is going to play in Beijing. In one of your columns, you actually point to a Chinese communist law, the National Intelligence Law 2017, which makes it very clear that every person and every organisation, including corporations, must act in the interests of China and must uh, support intelligence and other operations of the Chinese authorities. Absolutely. And, um, uh, you know, uh, have, make no mistake that that is something that has very real consequences for how Chinese companies, particularly large Chinese companies operating overseas, behave. Uh, you know, the, the national security apparatus and the intelligence system in China is, is you know, overwhelmingly uh, dominant in terms of uh, shaping how Chinese business operates. And Landbridge, which is the Chinese company uh, that's operating an Australian uh, uh, subsidiary in, in the port of Darwin, uh, is no different. Um, Landbridge has actually been uh, a company very close to Xi Jinping's uh, Belt and Road strategy. Uh, Landbridge has invested in major port development around the Panama Canal, for example, that's actually one of their biggest overseas presences. Uh, and, um, you know, that is celebrated as, you know, delivering for Xi Jinping and his Belt and Road strategy. Um, also, it's, it's worth mentioning, David, that, you know, any large Chinese company will, will have um, a branch of the Chinese Communist Party operating in, inside the company, acting as a sort of a a shadow um, overseeing the management of Chinese companies. Um, and uh, again, at the time uh, when I was writing about this back in, in 2015, this seemed to be um, bizarre news to Australians. Uh, you, you made reference to the Defence Department official saying, well, it looks like it's going to be an Australian subsidiary. No, no problem there, nothing to see. And, and really that just reflected a, a, a naivety uh, and I believe a, a sort of an ideological perspective strongly driven by Treasury uh, and the Foreign Investment Review Board, which operates inside Treasury, which is to say that, you know, there is no difference between how a Chinese company operates in the economy and how an American company or a Canadian company might operate in the, in the global economy. Uh, to which the answer is that's not right. That that just shows um, a lot of people still do not understand how the Communist Party functions inside the People's Republic and, and the overwhelming control it has over the, the Chinese economic system. So, so it turns out that Chinese foreign investment is different. Um, and since that time, our own governments have acknowledged that by stopping uh, Huawei, you know, another prominent Chinese um, international company from moving into 5G, uh, but also preventing a number of other Chinese entities from moving into the Australian um, electricity grid, um, although they're substantially there already. Um, and so the, the challenge that I think our governments face, uh, David, is, is they're going to have to unpick a lot of these foreign investment decisions that were made 
at an earlier time when the thought was the more we engaged with China, the more they were going to become like us, you know, the, the more we would sort of somehow, I don't know, weaken the role of the Communist Party as China became wealthier and, and more integrated with the world. Almost no one would make that argument today. Um, and yet here we are in Australia still um, living with the consequences of that dependence which we allowed to build up in our economic relationship with China with um, no government really prepared to take those tough steps necessary to, to start to unpick some of those um, areas of dependency. Do you see this as a significant problem in the West, this idea that if you uh, encouraged the communists to behave as if they were capitalist, that they would then become like us and become less of a threat to us. This seemed to be the line taken, for example, by President Clinton when he allowed uh, China into the WTO without putting any restrictions on it. No, there was no conditions which had to be fulfilled every year to demonstrate how China was behaving as if it were a Western liberal country in terms of the restrictions within the People's Republic. This seems to be not just a problem of our government, it seems to be a problem of many Western governments, do you think? Yes, I agree with that. And, and I think we, we, we're paying um, a price uh, internationally for, for that mistaken judgment uh, the, the China's accession into the WTO, I think, became symbolic of that. Um, and I think even then, uh, that was a misreading. Uh, you, know, you know, the point where I think China um, lost its last opportunity to sort of slowly liberalise from within was Tiananmen Square where, um, you know, Deng, uh, the, the great economic reformer, Deng Xiaoping, was, was really responsible for saying we're going to crack down against that movement of students um, in the square, which was wanting China to, to become not a democracy, but sort of more, more open and move on to a, a pathway of political reform. You know, the, the Communist Party briefly considered that step and decided decisively no uh, at, at that time. And I think we in the West, you know, fooled ourselves for another 20 years after that point in believing that somehow a, a richer China was was going to be a, 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 a China where ultimately they'd become more like us and their political system. That's not what drives the Chinese Communist Party. Um, incidentally, David, same problem in Europe with Russia, you know, when the Berlin Wall uh, fell, um, Europe for 20 years thought that um, closer integration with Russia was going to make Russia a safe democracy. And that, of course, has turned out not to be the case. And um, I, I think now, um, certainly in the US um, uh, and to some degree in Europe, on, on China, there is a realisation that China is not going to become more like us, that it is, in fact, the number one purpose of the Communist Party is to stay in control um, at any price. Um, and so we see the US uh, most clearly starting to, um, you know, not, not isolate itself from China economically, but to make sure that critical infrastructure, 
um, uh, protecting uh, intellectual property around uh, key technology. All of these things have, have to be now air-gapped from engagement with China. And I would have said, David, that Australia was moving down that track until we came to um, the Albanese government coming into power and saying, well, we're now going to stabilise our relationship with China. You know, all of the things that were sort of overreactions on the part of the Morrison government uh, are going to be put to one side. Um, and so we now have the universities diving back in to attract Chinese students. We have a lot of Australian business, which should have continued to work to diversify its activities, reopening those old connections with the PRC. So we've lost that chance, and I think we're now building more dependence. If you go back to the pre-war situation... <laughs> I mean, the pre-Second World War situation, and uh, I'm referring particularly to the, the Dalmouth affair in 1938, which was a ship taking pig iron to Japan. The big controversy raised by the waterside workers was the, their wish that uh, the government ban the export of pig iron to Japan, fearing that it would come back in the form of uh, <laughs> weapons. Uh, but that was merely the export of uh, minerals to Japan, for which the then Prime Minister was vilified with the name Pig Iron Bob. What do you think? What would have been the reaction in the 30s had we decided that we would lease the port of Darwin to a Japanese corporation? Would that have been accepted <laughs> in the 30s, do you think? Oh, gosh. Uh, well, one, one, one would hope not, although, you know, really the, the parallel is that we, we were as unprepared as we could possibly have been for war uh, in the late 1930s um, and by the time of uh, Pearl Harbour just a little bit later. Um, even though the signals were, were clear, uh, what uh, Japan's strategic direction was really from the late the late 1930s, and um, we're as unprepared uh, for war now as we could possibly be. I've I've, I've been around our defence organisation for the better part of 30 years. I've I've never seen defence less prepared, less ready. Uh, in fact, defence is in something of a crisis right now with uh, uh, key problems with uh, replacement equipment projects uh, not working. Uh, and people leaving the services in, in um, unsustainable numbers um, at precisely the time where it is evident to all of us, if, if you're just reading newspapers, that um, the region is on the brink of a potentially significant strategic crisis. That's not to say it's inevitable, David. I, I, I do believe the Americans will, will are doing their best to try and build and strengthen deterrence to prevent China from doing something really silly, for example, over Taiwan. But in Australia, we're afflicted with this sort of wishful thinking that somehow this is not a problem. And that's how you can get, to bring it back to the start of this conversation, there's this sort of idiot statement from the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet that don't worry, our legislation will save us. Uh, you know, just to sort of take it back to the Port of Darwin. If, if it was the case that 
you know, some crisis happened in the South China Sea next week and all of a sudden it became clear that the government needed to take back control of the port. It, it's not as though we've got a battalion of troops up in the north who can simply march into the port area and say, right, we're now running this facility until we can find, you know, a, an owner that we trust more to, to look after for it. So, so this idea of we'll just walk in when the crisis starts is, is not real. Uh, and, and it also under, undermines our ability to prepare more effectively for, for a crisis, which is what we, we should be doing now. Uh, as I say, our allies see this, um, even under the Biden administration, they see this. And, you know, the US has, for example, um, put several hundred million dollars into establishing a large military fuel farm uh, just a, a little south of Darwin. Well, they're not doing that because they um, think that we're in a benign region, uh, David. They're, they're doing that because they can see um, a very clear strategic case why America might be wanting to operate north of the Indonesian archipelago uh, in, in a military sense uh, at times of high attention. Um, so if the US can see that, why can't we? I mean, what, why is this almost an undiscussable subject in in the Australian context, I, I, I don't understand it, uh, and that's one of the reasons why I keep keep writing about it because I, I think this is this is um, a series of um, strategic developments that we have to pay attention to for, for our own interests. With the situation in uh, Europe and the Middle East, and uh, with the the position of the American administration, which is particularly weak, I would have thought at the level of the presidency, particularly the, the allegations which have been made concerning the involvement of the presidential family over some time in relation to access and influence in that family and the general situation in the world. Would there be a temptation, do you think, for the Chinese leadership to act now in relation to Taiwan is this the this could be seen could it not by that administration as being a really the optimum time to act if they wanted to act? There is a view growing amongst um, uh, people that watch um, Chinese military developments that um, the, the mid sort of twenty twenties presents uh, a point of maximum risk almost for uh, Chinese military adventurism directed towards Taiwan or, or maybe an incident that might happen in the South China Sea that could potentially spin out of control and, and lead to conflict. And um, why that's happening, I think, is um, it, it's, comp it's a complex story to unpack, but the factors that I think you have to take into account is... Um, uh, Xi Jinping's age, so he's now in his early 70s. He's got five more years of political leadership um, before a fourth term, which I'm sure will come, uh, but he's in his third term. He's failing to deliver economic benefits to the Chinese people. And increasingly, you can see the party sort of trying to stoke 
aggressive nationalism in amongst the Chinese population as a, as a as an alternative almost to delivering economic growth. Um, that's one factor. The second factor is the growth of military power inside the the Chinese People's Liberation Army, which is fast and uh, very significant, actually giving the PLA a, a, a reach far far wider than simply Taiwan. But you also have a number of other countries in the region starting to respond. So December 23rd last year, uh, no one paid attention to it here, but December 23rd last year, uh, David, Japan announced a doubling of its defence spending. Um, The Taiwanese um, uh, early next year, next January, uh, are going to be bringing back um, full-on conscription. Uh, the Philippines has re- renegotiated American access into the Philippines. So, so there are movements happening where you can see countries are getting worried about China and they're starting to do something about it. And, and so the, the Chinese calculation is, well, maybe we need to move faster. You know, maybe we need to actually make use of our growing military power before countries around us will make our task more difficult. And then we come to the the political factors that you've um, just raised, David. Um, if I was a Chinese military planner, I would be looking at 2024 uh, when America is going to be in a, a presidential election campaign. You know, who knows how that's going to play out in terms of the various candidates, but a distracted America, inwardly focused um dealing with the consequences of Ukraine, dealing with the consequences of instability in the Middle East. You can certainly see how there would be people in the the planning establishments of the Chinese military thinking, well, this might be the best chance that we've got to, you know, stage that um, takeover of Taiwan. And and so I'm, I'm not suggesting that it's inevitable by any stretch of the imagination, but that sort of mid decade crisis is one that is increasingly concerning American defence planners, uh, people that watch the Chinese military like I do, uh, and it's something that I think Australia should be paying close attention to. There seem to be some strange things happening in China where you have people people who are high up in, in authority suddenly disappearing, like the Minister for Foreign Affairs. Uh, it, it looks as though President Xi, dictator Xi, is reaffirming his authority and creating a much more Maoist or Stalinist regime than seemed to prevail beforehand. I, I agree with you. Uh, we, we just had the defence minister uh, uh, who was sort of uh, dragged off uh, the stage, not literally, but uh, figuratively in the last few weeks. The, uh, the the senior command of uh, China's uh, strategic rocket forces, uh, that's the part of the military that looks after the, the nuclear capability, that, that was purged just recently. And uh, she, uh, uh, you know, will regularly purge uh, the intelligence apparatus, the, 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 the senior generals, in, in ways which look absolutely like Stalin uh, and the the sort of 1940s and 1950s. Um, and so, in, in fact, I think that um, China is now looking uh, in its in its 
the way its political leadership behaves, uh, a lot more like North Korea um, or a lot more like China uh, during the Cultural Revolution, uh, where, you know, one, one man's rule was, was really sufficient and people could be disappeared from senior positions uh, with no explanation um, ever provided. It, 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 it's, a, it's a feature of, I think, the, the twilight days of authoritarian systems. Uh, and, you know, Xi Jinping, for, for whatever reason, uh, uh, people can sort of talk about his own experience of seeing his father purged in the, in the late 1950s at the very beginning of the Cultural Revolution. But I, I think that uh, Xi Jinping sees this as a way of sustaining his own control and, and even though he's now purging his own people, uh, these are people that he's put into positions of authority, uh, it is a way of, um, you know, demonstrating his, his sole control. Um, and, and what that means is that it undermines the, the capacity of the, the Communist Party to uh, say to Xi Jinping, well, maybe this isn't working, you know. Maybe this would be a really bad idea to launch a military operation against Taiwan. In fact, it would be a really bad idea uh, for them to do that. Um, but if there's no one around in the party to give that type of frank advice to Xi, I think that, you know, that lifts the the risk factor even even more in, in coming years. To what extent do you think uh, he's influenced by an ageing population and obvious problems in the economy that we read about, does that uh, impact, does that encourage him to an adventure or does it make him more careful, do you think? Uh, it, it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, I, what I would say is at the moment there's almost no economic or, or demographic um, statistic which is looking positive for, for the Communist Party these days. And so, you know, it used, used to be said as a sort of a shorthand that if China, if the party was delivering 6% growth a year, that was sufficient to sort of meet the aspirations of the Chinese people for constantly improving living standards. And, well, we haven't seen that for quite some time. I mean, I, I, I think Chinese growth this year is probably going to be more, more like three or four percent. Um, the demographic aspects um, uh, figure into this as well, which is to say that, uh, you know, uh, China does now look like it's it's falling into a middle income trap where um, it doesn't actually have the capacity to get wealthier uh, at the pace that is sort of required to lift living standards. Um, and even on the one-child policy, uh, David, which I think is an interesting example, you know, the, uh, China now has an overhang of something in the order of 30 or 40 million uh, young Chinese men um, who are unlikely ever to find a partner because of the consequences of the one-child one policy back in the day. That's now been abandoned. The party's actually telling its people to have three children, and uh, but they're not listening. <laughs> they're not listening to the party on that score. But you know, here's an interesting um, little fact which I sort of tumbled to not not so long ago: is that uh, if you're a Chinese family looking to um, help your son 
uh, find a partner, one of one of the best things you you can do is to buy that son an apartment. And and so a very significant number of Chinese investment has gone into purchasing apartments um, off the plan, which are never going to be built now uh, because the Chinese housing sector is in such a crisis. Um, and it, something like a third of all Chinese purchasing of property, which is now caught up in the housing crisis in China, was was purchased precisely for uh, a single male child uh, as part of the aspiration to help them find a partner. So if we see a collapse of the Chinese housing market, that's going to have been driven by bad party decisions with regard to the one uh, child policy from, you know, th 20 or 30 years ago. So r really what I'm saying to you here is that all of the big economic and demographic um, uh, steps that the party has taken over quite a few decades now are going bad. And on top of that, Xi Jinping's Belt and Road strategy, that's failing, you know, and it, it, it was originally thought it was going to be building dependence on the part of a whole bunch of countries on China, instead of which it's just um, stocked up a huge volume of debt, uh, which is now dragging down Chinese banks. And um, the question that I think um, Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party leadership have to deal with now is, well, if we're failing in that respect, what can we do? What can we do to sustain our grip on power by having the Chinese people support us? And I think the answer is we're stoking nationalism. We're getting uh, the Chinese population angry about Japan. Uh, and, in fact, if you look at uh, Chinese media, you know, there's a huge volume of uh, documentaries and soap operas which are uh, being on uh, Chinese TV, which are all about making the Chinese population angry with the Japanese for, for their historical um, behaviour. You're, you're saying to China that the only way you can realise the China dream is you must take over Taiwan. And so there's quite a steam of nationalist sentiment building up on, yes, we need a war to, to take back Taiwan. And I, I think this is a deliberate but also very risky strategy on the part of the, the Communist Party because it's one thing to stoke that nationalism, but you can then find yourself being dragged along by that nationalism as, as well. And um, I, 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 I think that, you know, taking a sort of a 10 or 20-year projection here, um, the, the party is deeply worried about its ability to stay in control. Um, and if the Communist Party thinks and if, if Xi Jinping thinks that the way they will be able to keep the Chinese population under control is to go to war, then I think they'll, they'll be prepared to take that step. Um, and it'll be a decision made on very different calculations to the way we think about these sorts of issues. You know, I talk to people in our business community all the time who say the Chinese would be absolutely crazy to embark on a war over Taiwan. Why would they do something so silly for an island of only 23 million people that would wreck their economy? That's, that's kind of how Australians think about these things. And, and my answer to that is to say, but that's not what is driving the motivations of the Chinese Communist Party. They, they are operating according to a different set of priorities. And, and so, again, I think um, you, you're right to go back to your question. 
um, that this is a very risky period. And if the party can't deliver economic growth, well, then they can deliver conflict potentially. And, and that for at least a period will have a lot of Chinese people um, actually thinking that's a good thing. Well, uh, getting back to the original question about uh, the port of Darwin, it, it does seem as though our government is willing to pay a high price, higher price than they need pay, to get the Chinese government to begin to observe more the commitments they've entered into in relation to trade. Well, they, they are the, the lawbreakers in this regard, and to me it seems remarkable that the Prime Minister would even consider going unless, unless he had a, an absolutely watertight commitment as far as these things can be watertight for China not only to uh, resume the relationship as it uh, should be in international trade law, but to give some sort of commitment that this will never happen again. Yeah. I agree. Uh, you know, frankly, this is like uh, it, it's it's the geopolitical equivalent of Australia trying to talk itself back into an abusive relationship. <laughs> we're, we're the one that's being abused, David. And I just find it amazing that you know, for, for all sorts of um, uh, malign political reasons, China punishes us by these trade bans. Um, then it quite literally, under the pretense of their legal system, takes two Australians hostage. Um, and when China then starts to reverse those things, um, our approach seems to be to say, well, thank you. Thank you, China, for taking these, you know, uh, magnificent steps. But actually they are just behaving like gangsters, really. The, it's just the party using whatever instruments it's got at, at its control to try and manipulate political outcomes from, from Canberra uh, that they want. And um, so, so far, you'd have to say they're getting it because they're getting a more, a more quiescent government in the form of the Albanese government, which is, you know, not prepared to call China out of its, over its bad behaviour in the South China Sea, of its extensive cyber spying, including against Australia, against the Australian government uh, and against Australian business. And we accept all of that. Um, in the interests of delivering a, a trip for Prime Minister Albanese, for which there is, it seems to me, no, no content. Um, uh, I, I saw um, Albanese being interviewed on, on the ABC last, last weekend and, and um, he was asked, well, what do, you want to what, do you, what do you want to get from this visit, Prime Minister? And his answer was, the visit's the thing. It's, it's just to be able to say that we can have conversations with the Chinese government. But unfortunately, <laughs> the conversations are saying nothing, you know, they're not delivering on anything. And I, I believe that, I mean, this is my speculation here, um, I have to acknowledge that, but I, I think there's two prime motivations with Albanese's visit. One is he wants to literally walk in the footsteps of Gough Whitlam, uh, to be there for the 50th anniversary of Whitlam's 1973 visit, which sort of established diplomatic relations between Australia and, and the People's Republic. Certainly the number of times um, Albanese says this refers to, to Whitlam. 
um, tells me that you know this this is an important sort of symbolic moment in in the in the history of the Labor Party and in terms of Albanese's own view of Whitlam, and and so that's something that he's desperate to do. Um, the other thing he wants to do is to be able to say we are managing this relationship better than the, those those idiots in the previous government. So there's a domestic political driver. But when it comes to the content of what are we trying to get from the relationship with China, well, we're not going to talk to them about their threatening Taiwan. We're not going to talk to them about their cyber uh, intellectual property theft. We're not going to talk about their um, uh, espionage against um, Australia. We're not going to talk about uh, China's attempts to get the Solomon Islands or other Pacific governments providing military facilities for them in the Pacific region. We're not going to talk about China's annexation of the South China Sea. So on all of these big strategic issues, yeah, we may be able to sell China lobsters, but we're not going to be talking to China about their their attempts to sort of destroy the international order uh, in the Indo-Pacific. So um, we're, we're paying a very high price for Mr Albanese to have a symbolic visit mm. to Beijing it is not a, much in return. Yes, it is a high price for what is effectively a, a photo opportunity. Uh, but uh, what, what uh, and I think you're absolutely right in that we should be more prepared, which means spending money and spending it sensibly and also in, I think, restoring the morale of the armed forces, which I suspect have suffered. But uh, I, I'm wondering what you think about uh, the, the debate concerning the, uh, the building of the nuclear submarines in Adelaide. Is this a, a realistic uh, proposal, do you think? Well, um, I, I, I listened to Alexander Downer's comments with interest and, and um, I, I, I have to agree with, with Alexander to, to the extent that um, th this is not something that we can do solely within the capabilities of the shipbuilding industry in South Australia. Uh, if Australia is ever going to be able to construct these submarines, it's going to be a national enterprise. And, and there are, you know, companies in New South Wales and, and Victoria that will actually play a larger role than uh, the metal bashing that might take place at, at the Osborne um, shipyards. So it is not going to be done purely by any means in South Australia. Uh, and, I, and I do wish that governments would simply stop writing that particular cheque, David, because they cannot deliver it. Uh, you, you know, there are two yards in the US building um, Virginia-class submarines. Each of those uh, shipbuilding um, uh, consortia are employing 10 to 15,000 people. You know, that, that's significantly in advance of the entirety of Australia's maritime construction capability right now. Uh, and so if we are going to do it, the, the key message is it's not going to happen where governments are spending only 2% of gross national product on defence. And, and my concern here is that, it, you know, both from the, the Morrison government and the Albanese government, they, they talk this really big game about all of the things that are going to happen in defence. 
it, it's a four percent of gross national product gain, but they're attempting to deliver it on a two percent of gross national product defence spend, and it's not achievable. Um, and right now, what's happening in in defence is that um, you know because they're putting a priority on delivering these submarines because it's a key part of AUKUS and that is a key part of the American alliance, everything else is being squeezed out. So, so um, you know, to give you one example, um, the, the, the Defence Strategic Review that was announced a few months ago significantly cut the number of armoured vehicles that our army was expecting to have delivered over the next sort of half decade from, you know, uh, something in the order of 500 down to about 140 such vehicles. Now, you can, ha you can have an argument to say, well, maybe that was the wrong technology, maybe they needed to be redesigned, perhaps the vehicle should have been lighter. But all the government did was to say, uh, we're not going to build them. Uh, in fact, we're only going to have armoured vehicles for the equivalent of one battalion in the entire Australian Army, right? The Army's 30,000 people, a battalion's about 500 people. So we're going to have armoured vehicles for about 500 people. And um, the, the money that's notionally saved from this, well, that's being put towards the, the cost of the submarine program. So uh, the risk, I think, is we're going to gut the rest of the Defence Force in order to deliver these submarines if we will ever be able to deliver them. And surprise, surprise, um, what do you think is happening? People are leaving the army. People are now leaving the army. Something like five to 600 a month are leaving the army because they cannot see a future uh, for themselves. Uh, that's the current situation that, that we've currently got. Um, and, you know, I could, I could pick another sort of 10 examples where those sorts of problems are happening. Um, as defence tries to sort of... Um, you know, gut, gut itself in order to deliver the submarines at the same level of defence spending uh, uh, that we've had for, for a decade, uh, we are losing defence capability um, at precisely the time we, when we should be doing the opposite and, and building it up. It, it's just crazy. Um, and, and um, but, you know, I, how did we get to that situation? I, 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 think, I think Richard Miles attempted to have that discussion inside Cabinet but was ultimately defeated because um, uh, uh, the Treasurer could see that we were within reach of a surplus in the budget and he didn't want to see defence spending grow to put that surplus at risk. So, so that's where we're at. And, um, y you know, now, will we ever see those submarines? Um, well, David, I'll tell you this, if we get the... Um, there, there are eight submarines planned for the, for the nuclear fleet. I will be, I think, in the order of about 110 uh, by the time number eight is, is in the water. Uh, so this is a very long-term plan, and it's not one which really addresses the big strategic issues of the mid-2020s that, that we've just been talking about. Yes, this seems to be the time that we should be concentrating, does it not, that uh, we, we can't... It's all very well planning so far into the future, but doing it and not having anything else until then does seem to be a, a rather unwise situation. Does that mean we're just, uh, we're basically dependent on the United States? 
Well, frankly, it does. And, and um, uh, you know, this, this is um, an absolute tragedy, it seems to me, that we, we have a Navy where, um, you know, al almost every single um, major fleet unit, major ship or submarine needs to be replaced. And right now the government is going through a review of existing plans for replacing the surface fleet. Uh, we, we're supposed to hear about that um, in uh, the first quarter of 2024. I, I think a number of existing plans are going to be tossed out. And so we'll be back to the drawing board for the surface fleet with, with no promise of, you know, delivery inside the decade. Um, as I just said, we, we've had um, the major plan for re-equipping our army with vehicles has now been killed with no sensible alternative put in its place. Um, the Air Force is in, in a better state, um, uh, and that's largely because we've got the Joint Strike Fighter being delivered, so there's no um, immediate um, uh, sort of demand for, for new platforms to come into service. Uh, with one big exception, which is to say we're the only sort of front-rank military in the world which is not yet operating an armed drone, uh, that is to say a, a system that's not got a pilot in it. Um, pretty much every other country with a, a self-respecting military has one of those and we've managed not to, not to do that. So, so across the board... Um, uh, our Defence Force is significantly less ready and capable for military operations than it was even 10 years ago, uh, coming out of the sort of um, Iraq-Afghanistan experience. And that means to say, um, yes, we are dependent on the United States. The, the most effective bit of deterrence we have in the country right now are the Marines, which, you know, come to, come to the north uh, for, for nine months of the year. I mean that presence of the Marines would have to contemplate the plans of any country that might be thinking of, of doing its damage militarily. Um, so, so how ironic is that, David? I mean, we, we have a Labor government that talks about how we have to be more independent and more self-reliant, um, just so long as they don't have to spend any money delivering that de defence capability. Um, and, of course, what, what that leaves is, you know, more dependence on the United States. And uh, what about the United Kingdom? Well, they're, they're a long way away. Um, and, uh, you know, the UK has articulated since Brexit a strategy to um, uh, say that they're going to put more emphasis on uh, the Indo-Pacific region. Diplomatically, that has done some good. Uh, for example, uh, the, the Brits have significantly increased their diplomatic presence in um, Southeast Asia and, and uh, they've opened new high commissions or, or, or embassies in the Pacific Islands. But, you know, it, on, on any fair assessment of Britain's military strategic interests, th their focus is going to be, um, is going to be Europe, uh, and it's going to be Russia. Uh, and it probably needs to be that uh, for, for very obvious strategic reasons that we can see playing out in, in Ukraine at the moment. Uh, the, the, the Brits did send um, earlier this year their, their new aircraft carrier, the, the Queen Elizabeth II, into the South China Sea, which was a great thing to see. It, it came with um, 
a detachment of US Marines uh, on the carrier operating their ver vertical takeoff joint strike fighters. So a good example of allied cooperation. But at the end of the day, uh, uh, David, the, you know, the, the, I think a key lesson that any sensible country should take out of what we've seen been happening in the world over the last few years is you need to be able to defend yourself. Uh, and the, the more capability you have to do that, the more likely it is that you'll find the US and other countries will be prepared to support you. Um, if, if you if you just try and, and, and sort of ride on the coattails of American security, which really has been the Australian approach for decades, ultimately um, that leads to our partners in Washington and elsewhere saying, why, why would we bother? You know, if the Australians won't invest in their own security, why should they imagine that we'll, we'll do that for them? Uh, and, and so I think that, um, uh, you know, frankly, we've had a pretty gentle ride with the Americans not putting more pressure on us to front up and take our security seriously. I've been disappointed to take it back to the Port of Darwin story that the Americans were not more upset about this. Um, you, you may recall at the time um, uh, uh, Barack Obama did, did have a sort of a slightly sharp exchange with Malcolm Turnbull to sort of say, hey, we would have liked to have known that you, you were about to lease the port uh, to a Chinese company. And uh, Turnbull's rather flip response was to say, well, gosh, you guys should take out a subscription to the Northern Territory News. <laughs> um, and, you know, it was all, all very amusing, I suppose, but I just thought to myself, well, um, you, know, you know, we'd have a heart attack in this country if... Uh, if the Americans were taking such a cavalier attitude to our security. Yes. Um, I found that an extraordinary, um, extraordinary observation. Yeah. Yes, yes. I mean, the truth is that, um, you know, our own government was blindsided by um, a bit of, frankly, in incompetent bureaucratic action federally. Yes. Uh, and uh, what turned out to be a loophole in our foreign investment laws, which said that a piece of territory owned infrastructure could be sold without the FERB assessment. Um, so it wasn't as though we, we were on top of this issue. But, um, you know, sooner or later, I think the Americans will be, and, and probably are already privately saying to the Australian government, we're worried that you're drifting on defence. Yes. And frankly, you need to do more. It's unrealistic to think that uh, either hostile countries or our friends aren't aware of what we're up to. Well, thank you very much, Peter. That was a wonderful contribution. And as usual, you, you bring a realism and a depth to your comments. That's why you're read so widely. Once again, thank you. And uh, this is- Thank you, David. It's my pleasure to talk with you. Very good. This is ADH. I'm David Flint. The program is Save the Nation, produced by Charlie Noble. Until next time.